Genesis 25, we have been looking at the life of Abraham. And just like every single person's life, the life of Abraham comes to a close here in Genesis 25. We're going to see lots of God's promises coming to fruition. The Lord again reminding us he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and what he says, he does. And what he says always happens. So we're going to see a lot of promises come to fruition. We're going to be able to look into his life, the end of his life, his son's life, even some of his grandson's and great-grandson's life. But in verse 1 through 4, we will start off there. It tells us, Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Midan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua and Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Letusim. Let us him? Yeah, I think so. And Lemumim, the sons of Midian, were Ephath and Ephter and Hanok and Abadad and Elda. All these were the sons of Keturah. So one thing for us to look at here is Abraham was very fruitful in his old age. Uh, that it seems as if whenever the Lord gave him that blessing of being able to have Isaac, God really did a miracle in his life and in his body. He had six more sons in his old age, seven more grandsons, and three great-grandsons after Sarah, his first wife's death. We're talking about someone living two lives here, really. Abraham, uh, he remarried after being 137 years old. We get that from Genesis 23, verse 1. We know that Sarah lived 127 years. And then in Genesis 17, 17, we're told that he's 100 years old and that she's 90 years old. So he's 10 years older than her, and yet he is still very fruitful. So now for us here, it's probably not the same fruitfulness that the Lord wants to give us. I don't know if any of you even want to live till you're 137. I know I don't. Um, but now imagining remarrying and having all these sons and families, great-grandsons, and things like that. Now how we can apply this to our lives is that the Lord wants us to be fruitful spiritually no matter what age you are. Whether you're young or whether you're old, the Lord wants you to be fruitful spiritually. He wants you to be abiding in him that we may bear much fruit. An honest question here. How many of us have ever complained about this generation? Only a few of us are honest here, right, that we complain about this generation. How many of us do we complain about the world around us or the world today? Right, just a few of us. How many of us complain about Christians today or Christianity today, right? A handful of us. Maybe the Lord wants to use us to actually make a difference and not just complain about the problems. Perhaps the Lord wants to use us to, instead of just complain about the Thanksgiving meal, to help cook some of it, to help clean up, to help set up, to help watch the kids and do things of that sort. So perhaps the Lord wants to use us to raise up young people to look like Christ and to love on Christ. Perhaps the Lord wants to use you as maybe you have some more free time. Maybe as you have some more freedom. Perhaps you have some money saved up to bless people and to be able to disciple them in the things of Christ. 
to show them a different way. May we be fruitful no matter our age, whether young or whether old. All throughout Scripture, there are men and women who are fruitful for the Lord. So family, may we be like Abraham, 137, still being fruitful. May we be like Caleb. He's 100 years old and he says, hey, God gave me a promise. Maybe that mountain's the promise. I'm going to go fight for it, right? It would be like the Apostle John, and in his old age, he's still writing letters to the church to encourage them and exhort them. May we age in goodness, right? Like a good stock, like a good bank account. May we not age like a grape in the backseat of the car, right? May that be the way we age. We know those older people that as they age, they just get kinder and sweeter, right? They're handing out candies to everybody. They're hugging everybody. They bring the pastelitos, the cangrejitos, right? They're just loving and giving. And then we know some older people that they're pretty bitter. They're pretty mad. They don't want you walking on their sidewalk or on their front lawn. They don't want you anywhere near them, right? Hopefully as Christians, as people that should be abounding with the Spirit, with the fruit of the Spirit, which is agape love, may we grow in our fruitfulness no matter what age we are. Verse 5 and 6, it tells us, Now Abraham, he gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. And he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. We see here that Abraham, he gives all that he has to Isaac. He gives him his entire inheritance to the son of promise, to the son of the spirit, But yet he does take care of his other sons. But Isaac, he's the son of promise. He is the son of the spirit. He's going to be the heir to Abraham who's been given this promise of an incredible nation, of a nation of promise and blessing that the whole world would benefit and be blessed because of Abraham and his seed. One thing we can see here is there's evidence for Abraham growing in his consistent obedience to the Lord. That as he grows in his relationship with God, in the beginning we saw him sort of up and down. One chapter he was amazing. Next chapter he's saying, hey honey, go sleep with Pharaoh. Right? One chapter after the next. That's basically what he was doing. But now the last few chapters we see him consistently obeying the Lord more and more. And family, that's a mark of a maturing Christian. It's not that you're perfect But we should be more and more obedient to the Lord as we grow in our faith. As you say, hey, I've been saved for 10 years or I've been saved for 20 years. There should be a line that you've been growing and maturing. Just like we hope for our children. That they don't stay a 5-year-old until they're 30 years old. And hey, they're still 3 feet tall. And they still say mama and dada and cheche, right? That's not our desire for our kids. We want them to continue to grow and mature. The same is true for us. In Genesis chapter 21, this is where Abraham is told through the Lord, through his wife Sarah, hey, Isaac is the only one that's going to be an heir to us and to our family. Genesis chapter 21, if you would, verse 10 through 12. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son, Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. 
Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Again, we see him being obedient to that. He sends away all the rest of his sons away from Isaac. Perhaps wisdom after the friction between Abraham and Lot and between Abraham's shepherds and Lot's shepherds. Perhaps because of the friction between Ishmael and Isaac. Or perhaps because he said, hey, I know the Lord has commanded me to do this. I don't need God to reappear to re-remind me to not do X, Y, or Z. Right? The Lord's commands for us usually they're from here until we get to go home and be with the Lord. We don't need the Lord to constantly be telling us, hey... You shouldn't be gossiping or you shouldn't be in sin or you shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z. The command is the command for forever. Sometimes he reminds us because we're being disobedient. Sometimes he stays silent because we've been disobedient for so long. He's sort of giving us the silent treatment. So then we say, Lord, what's going on? And he says, you remember the last thing I asked you to do? Maybe you should go ahead and do that. Right? It would be great if you would actually do that. And perhaps that's what's happening here. But we see Abraham continuing to be obedient with the Lord. Verse 7 and 8, these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last, and he died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. And here we see the Lord being true to his promises. In Genesis 15, verse 15 as he's giving Abraham the promise of Isaac, the promise of a son, the promise of his descendants in chapter 15, in verse 15, he tells him, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. Again, family, how do we look at death? How do we think of death for the Christian, for the believer, we should look at it like Paul. He says, hey, I'm about to go on my cruise. Man, a free cruise, that would be awesome, right? Take a cruise to paradise, to perfection. That's awesome. You told me there's a cruise where I can eat as much as I want and I won't gain any weight? I'm on that boat, right? I'm going there. I'm ready. I'm satisfied. I'm hungry for it. This is how we see Abraham's life. That word satisfied, it means to be full, to be appeased. To be complete, it also means to be abounding. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to leave a meal hungry. Right? Does anybody desire that? Oh, I want to go to this meal. I want to make sure I leave from there hungry. Only if you're doing what? Going to eat somewhere else afterwards. That's the only time you want to leave a meal hungry, right? But usually when you go to a restaurant and you leave hungry, usually you're kind of bothered about it. And then when it's an expensive restaurant, then you're really bothered about it, right? I spent how much, and it was how big? That was that. The little leaf on top doesn't make anything better, right? I'm still hungry. What's going on? But family, how do we treat our lives? Are you satisfied with your life? Can you say right now, man, my life, it is full. I am so joyful. My life, I, it's abounding. My life, I feel complete. And that's usually a hunger that we have our entire lives until we really meet Christ. Let's turn to James chapter 2, and we will see here, man, what was it that satiated Abraham? What was it that satisfied Abraham that he was able to pass away and he was comfortable, he was fine? 
Some of us would say, yeah, if I live to be 175, yeah, I would be comfortable with life too. I'd be full. But we know many men and women that die young, that die old, and depending where they're at with the Lord, they're satisfied and full, or they're hungry and they're leaving, kicking and screaming. In James chapter 2, verse 21, it tells us, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. Abraham, he was satisfied with life. Because he was the friend of God. He had a relationship with the Lord. And that's why he was ready. He was full. He was satisfied. And the question for us today is, hey, is it possible to be friends with God today? With no altars? When was the last time someone spoke face to face with God? Right? Do any of us really believe, hey, no, I can still be a friend of God. Anybody believe that here? A couple of us are a little shy about it. Right? Some of us believe that, hey, yeah, I could be a friend of God. Adam Clark, he gives this great eulogy for Abraham. He says, above all, as a man of God, he stands unrivaled. So that under the most exalted and perfect of all dispensations, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is the proposed and recommended model and pattern according to which faith, obedience, and perseverance of the followers of Jesus are to be formed. Reader, while you admire the man, do not forget the God that made him so great, so good, and so useful. Even Abraham had nothing but what he had received. From the free, unmerited mercy of God proceeded all his excellences. But he was a worker together with God, and therefore he did not receive the grace of God in vain. Go thou. Believe, love, obey, and persevere in like manner. The joy and the blessing for us is Abraham, he wasn't anything special. He wasn't anyone special. As we've gone through Genesis, some of us read it and go, man, this guy is nothing special, right? I kind of don't like this guy. For the wives especially, this guy continues to throw his wife under the bus. I don't like this guy, right? He's kind of a jerk. He two times his wife. He accepts all these blessings from Pharaoh and Abimelech. And his wife staring at him like, you're really going to do this, right? You're really doing this right now? But what Adam Clark is reminding us is Abraham wasn't anyone special. He didn't have any special attributes. It was all given to him from God. He just loved God. He believed God. He obeyed God. And he persevered with God. He didn't allow one falling out. Or one sin for him to say, okay, that's it. It's all over. I'm just going to go down. Doesn't matter. No, he persevered. Instead of lusting after Sodom and Gomorrah, he trusted in God. He said, hey, Lot, you pick what you want. I trust the Lord. He's going to take care of me. He just wanted peace with his family member. Instead of spending his whole life building a home and building a heritage, he spent his life living in a tent and building altars to worship the Lord. Again, family, is it possible for us today to be friends with God, to be a friend of God? Let's turn to John 15 
And Jesus himself, he gives us the exact prescription to be a friend of God. John 15, and we can start in verse 11. It tells us, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Again, family, you want to be friends with God? Just need to obey. Just need to obey what he asks of us. Just need to obey his word. That's it. It's that simple. If we're just obedient to God and his word, he calls us his friend. And many times we want to obey the big and huge things, right? Oh, God's calling me to move to Africa or go to college far away. God's calling me to do X, Y, or Z. But more often than not, he's commanding us to do the little things, right? Again, the full context of chapter 15, he started off with loving one another. He reminds us that he laid down his life for us. He reminds us to abide with him, to spend time with him. These are the small commandments we need to obey if we want to be a friend of God. And then we can jump to those bigger steps of faith. Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Are we not forsaking the assembling of the brethren? Are we abhorring things that are evil? Are we clinging to those things that are good? These are the commands which we have to obey if we want to be a friend of God. And again, we're blessed, we're privileged that God, the creator of heaven and earth, the judge of all mankind, wants to be your friend. That's insane, guys. That's crazy. He wants to talk with us. He wants to have that relationship with us. Again, he tells us, you're not just a slave. You're not just a servant to do my business or to serve at church. No, I want to reveal my plan to you. I want to speak to you. I do. God wants to reveal his plan and purposes for our lives, even the minute details. But are we being obedient to the bigger things? What do we know without a shadow of a doubt? Is the will of God for our lives to be holy? There's no shadow of a doubt. That is in scripture. This is my will, right? Your purification to be holy, to be pure. So for following those things, then he can continue to share with us more and more. Right? I don't know how many kindergartners are going through calculus, right? I'm sure there's some out there. But not many kids, not my kids, are they having calculus, right, in pre-K. Uh, excuse me, teacher, are they coloring? No, no, we're going through pre-cal here uh, with their kids. They need to build up to that. And the same is true for us. God, show me your will for my life in these huge monumental things. No, are you trying to be holy? Are you abhorring those things that are evil? Or are you just making excuses for sin? What are we doing? We need to obey the commands of God. There's a lot of Christians that will say, you know, my life, my walk with the Lord and the terrible Christian I am, it's just out there to prove that anybody can be a Christian. That's what my life is. That's what my walk is. It's not a great thing to say, right? I don't think you'd say in front of your boss, I'm just here to prove you can be super lazy here at this job and you can still have a job here, right? Not going to have a job much longer. And yet we treat our Christianity like that. We say, hey, I can be sloppy. I can be in and out of sin. And hey, God loves me no matter what. Everything's good, right? Everything is chill. 
No, he asks us, hey, you want to be my friend? Just obey. Just obey. And I love how he starts off there in verse 11. He doesn't want us to obey so that we'd be destroyed or so that we'd be super annoying in this world or we'd be super mad or angry in this world or we'd be super sad in this world. He goes, no, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy, God's joy, Christ's joy would be in us and that now our joy would be made full. Again, that word satisfied, that word complete. That's when, and we're obedient to the Lord, when we are abiding with him. We can jump back to Genesis chapter 25, continue studying through there. So, hey, you want to live your life and be satisfied? Obey the Lord. Obey God's word. Don't go by your lust. Don't go by your feelings, your emotions. Hey, Lord, what does your word have to say? I have this decision. I have this choice. Our whole day is filled with choices, filled with decisions. Lord, what does your word have to say about this? Verse 9 through 11, it tells us, Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. And there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, and it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac lived by Ber Lahai Roy. Again, the only piece of land that Abraham ever owned was his gravesite, was his burial site. Though his whole life, even though he was dwelling in a land promised to him and to his people, he wasn't fighting God for that. He wasn't fighting the people for that. What he was fighting for was his relationship with God. Verse 11, what it shows us after Abraham dies is that God's work, it's not done with just one man. He continues to move through mankind, right? Hopefully, you know, out of 100 people, 100 people die, right? There's no way getting around it unless the rapture comes, right? Perhaps today. But 100 out of 100 people die. But God's work, God's word, God's blessing continues to move. So it was in Abraham. And now it's going to move into Isaac, and God is going to begin to bless Isaac. Verses 12 through 18, we take a little snapshot at Ishmael and his life, Abraham's, really his first son, his firstborn son. And we get to read a bunch of crazy names and laugh at me and my pronunciation of them. But verse 12, it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, Amasa, Hadad, and Tima, Jeter, and Naphish, and Kedemah, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes towards Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. In the NASB, the last verse there, it says, he settled in defiance of all his relatives. Or the ESV, 
tells us he settled over against all his kinsmen. A couple of things for us to be reminded here. When Hagar is sent away the first time from Sarah, she's broken. She's pregnant, and yet her master, being obedient to her master, kicks her out of the house and is mad at her. And who's the one that comes and comforts her? Christ himself. To this poor servant girl from Egypt, simply being taken from place to place, having to obey orders. And there Christ promises her, hey, don't worry. I'm going to make a great nation from you and from your son. And what we see here is the Lord made a great nation out of him. He himself had the 12 tribes of his own kind. And he had many sons and a great family. There's another promise in Genesis chapter 16 verse 12 regarding Ishmael. It says that he's going to be a wild man or a wild donkey of a man. He's going to be a brawler in a sense. And his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Again, with Hagar being from Egypt, after she's kicked out, she probably heads back home. And some point there, that's where she gives birth to Ishmael. So Ishmael died with all his peoples, but he settled away from his family in Abraham and Isaac. I hope that makes sense. Verse 19, now we get a first view into Isaac's life and into Isaac's family. Again, this family that the Lord chooses to bless, that the Lord chooses to reveal his plans and purposes in. Just like Abraham, they were filled with imperfections. But they didn't just stay there. They didn't just say, hey, I'm imperfect and I'm going to stay imperfect for forever. I'm going to be perfectly imperfect. No, that's not what the Lord had. We see them growing and maturing. Verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Aramene, and Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, then why am I this way? Right? What in the world is going on in my stomach? So she then went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people will be separated from your body, and one people will be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red and all over like a hairy garment, and they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. couple things for us to see here. Isaac, he marries Rebekah when he's 40 years old. What we just read here at the end of verse 26 is when do they finally have children? 20 years later. 20 years later, him and Rebekah go through the same barrenness just like his dad and mom did. But he learns from his father's mistakes. This son of promise, this son of the spirit, he didn't go out trying to make things happen in his own way. He knew the promises of God, and that's what he relied on. 
He knew that through him, all the world would be blessed. That through him, man, there'd be as many descendants as sand on the seashore, as dust in the world, as stars in the sky. And yet he didn't go in his own flesh. He waited on the Lord. And when he didn't understand what was going on, he prayed. And that's a great, man, perspective for us to have. When you don't know what's going on, when things are hard, when things are difficult, don't make assumptions. Don't say, oh, God's evil, God's punishing me. No, pray to the Lord. Seek him, entreat him, see what's going on with him. He learned from his father's mistakes. Hopefully, we do the same, that we want to be better than our dads. Even if they were great, even if they weren't great, our desire is, hey, I want to just be a little bit better than my dad. So that my kids are a little bit better than me, or a lot better than me, hopefully, right? That should be our desire. That should be our hope. And we see here, this looks like a pretty godly couple. Jacob, he's praying for his wife. He's concerned for his wife and what she's going through. We can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's a very important scripture, especially for husbands and wives. 1 Peter chapter 3. And in verse 7, it tells us, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is a great warning for us as men. What is this saying? What is this not saying? Is this saying that women are weaker than men? Or that women are not as smart as men, not as wise as men. They're not as capable as men are, not in any way, shape, or form. There's a lot of women that can lift more weight than I can, that can beat me up, that can play basketball better than me or swim faster than me. There's a lot of women like that. However, what this is saying is that, man, the characteristics of men, the heart of men, the emotions of men, they are not as easily fractured and broken as a woman. That's all this is simply saying. So now we as men, we need to be careful how we treat our wives, how we speak to them, the things we say, the things we do. You can hang out with your best friend if he's a dude and not say a single word and have the, great, the best time ever, right? You do that with your wife, hey, what's wrong? What's going on? What's happening? Why aren't you talking, right? What's happening? Like, I'm not talking because I just don't want to talk. That's it, right? What it's really speaking, as it says, a weaker vessel is some of us, we have those metal double-walled Yeti cups, or I get them from Walmart for 10 bucks, but it's the same thing. And they're metal, they're double-walled, and I've had those on the top of my car fall off driving 30 miles an hour, and you come back around, you pick it up, has a ton of dents in it, but you put ice and water in it, and it still works great, right? still works great. But now if you have a crystal glass or a crystal goblet, you put that on your car and you decide to drive 40 miles an hour and it fall off, there's not going to be much of that left, right? I learned that this week with my cell phone. You put your iPhone on your car and you decide to drive 40 miles an hour down the road, it's not going to last very long is what I found out this week. And that's what the Lord is saying with husbands and wives. You need to treat one another. You need to care for one another. You need to dwell with her in understanding, you got to study her, what blesses her, what hurts her. And now as we do this, our prayer life isn't hindered. And I don't know about you, but that's a big deal. Because God, in and of a sense, is our father-in-law. He's the one that we're praying to. He's the one when, we're, when our boss is being a jerk to us. And Lord, I pray you'd give me deliverance from my boss. I pray, man, you'd help him out and work with him. 
hey, bro, I hope that you would be nicer to your wife and you would care for her too. I'm not going to answer anything right now. And sometimes that's how the Lord treats us as husbands because we're asking the Lord to do things for us that we're not doing for our wives. Lord, I pray you give me this raise at work. Give me honor and blessing. Help them love me and take care of me. Hey, are you loving and taking care of your wife or just yourself? So what we see here in Isaac is he's able to pray for his wife. He sees his wife hurting. He prays and the Lord answers his prayer. But it was still 20 years of waiting. The blessed one, the son of promise, the son of the spirit, his life was not perfect. His life was still difficult. His life was still hard. And it's a reminder for us, family, as Christians, our life is not supposed to just be health and wealth. All throughout the book of Acts, there's Christians who die. There's Christians who are sick. There's Christians who have diseases. There are Christians who are poor. Not because they didn't have enough faith. Not because their relationship with God was out of whack. But just because that's the way life is. Just because God has, for some of us, to go through difficulties and still love him and care for him so that other people see it and they're blown away. Man, how does so-and-so do it? How are they still serving the Lord? How are they still here on a Saturday when their spouse is sick at home, when their kid just passed away, when they're going through cancer? How are they here serving? That's why the Lord allows those things to happen sometimes. Isaac's life was not perfect. Next thing to be reminded of, there are two Boys in her wombs. She doesn't know what's going on. Rebecca's freaking out. What does she do? Does she start Googling things? Does she start looking at blogs? No, she entreats the Lord. Right? She seeks the Lord. Lord, what is going on here? God, what is happening here? And the Lord tells her, hey, you have two kids in your womb. And guess what happens? Once the time of departure came, she had twins. She had two people in her womb. The Lord warns her, hey, there's two nations. They're going to be against each other, and the older is going to serve the younger. Jewish legend says that Jacob and Esau were fighting in the womb and were even trying to kill each other in the womb, right? One getting the umbilical cord and trying to choke the other one out in the womb, right? Trying to put the other one in a sleeper hold in the womb. This is all legend. This is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. And it also tells us that every time Rebecca went near an idol's altar, that Esau would get excited and start jumping in the womb. And whenever she would go near to a place where the Lord was worshipped, Jacob, he would be the one that would be excited in the womb. All we know is that the Lord, before any of their character, before any of their work, God decided to have Jacob be the one that was in lead. That was in the charge. That was, in a sense, the boss, the one that the throne would continue to go through. The promise all the way in the beginning of Genesis that Mary, her seed, would one day give birth to the one who would crush Satan's head. Jacob is the one that's going to have that, and it's going to continue to work through him and with him. There's lots of very important scriptures on this. Before we get there again, the name of these two men... It's really simple. This is a great way to name kids. Instead of, again, Google, what does this name mean? What does that name mean? Who's on TV? Who's cool? Who's famous? The kid would pop out, and then they would name it. That would be it. So Esau pops up. He's red. He's all hairy. It's like this Chewbacca-looking kid coming out of the womb. And Harry, how's it going, man? You're going to be named Harry. That's what Esau means in Hebrew is Harry. Right? It's really simple. And then as Harry's coming out the womb... 
All Jacob's doing is just holding on to his foot. So he's just popping out the womb with him. He had to do nothing to get out of there. Okay, heel catcher. And you're Jacob. That's going to be your name, which means heel catcher. And you just hear heel catcher and doesn't really mean anything to us. For us, it would be someone riding someone else's coattail, right? I don't know if you have that at your job or in your group project, someone who does nothing on the group project, and they're just riding on your coattail. They get an A in the class because you helped them study, and they weren't really studying, right? So, hey, what did you study? Can I look at your notes? That's riding someone's coattail. And this is who Jacob is. This word heel catcher is the idea of someone who's a trickster, Someone who's a con man, someone who's a scoundrel, a rascal, right? Someone you don't really want to hang out with or deal with. And that's how they named these men. Sometimes my kids come up to me, my six-year-old and my three-year-old, hey, daddy, what's the name of this stingray? Steve the Stingray, all right? Yeah, that's the name of it. Oh, that's a great name. How'd you come up with that? I don't know, right? That's how they used to name kids in these times. They'd come out, something about them, and they would name them. One final thing for us to look at here, it's a huge topic. We can turn to Romans chapter 9, and we can take things in God's word a bit too far sometimes. And when we take them from one end to the other end, we can get into lots of trouble. And in Romans chapter 9, it gives us great perspective with Jacob and Esau and the relationship that God had for them. God's choosing for them, God's predestination for them. And in Romans chapter 9, we get some insight into this. Romans chapter 9, verse 10, it tells us, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good, Or anything bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And at times we can pull this out of context. First and foremost, Romans chapter 9, it's talking about Israel and the people of Israel being chosen. It's not talking about Christianity or Christians. Second off, we take this word, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And we can think of it, oh, that means God absolutely hates Esau. He condemned him to hell even before he was born. That's exactly what this means. But now let's turn to Luke, the gospel of Luke. And in chapter 14, the Lord uses the same exact word in the Greek. Luke, chapter 14, verse 26 It's a scripture, I reference it a lot, and it's the Lord warning us of loving anyone or anything more than him. In comparison to our love for him, we can have no other love come even close. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, it tells us, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when you got saved, did you go home to your parents and say, Hey, I hate you. I hope not. That's not biblical. What he's saying here is we cannot love our parents or our own family more than the Lord. And guess what? It's the exact same word in the Greek. The word misos. 
You can think of miso soup. That's what it's talking about here. I'm not talking about miso soup. It's not that God picks one and hates the other. Hey, I'm going to choose to love you and I'm going to choose to hate you. No, the Lord, for whatever reason, he chose to put Jacob at a notch on top of Esau. He did not condemn Esau to hell. This is the Lord's decision in this. So just as God is not commanding anyone here to go to your mother-in-law and say, hey, I hate you because I'm a Christian, right? Don't go, to, don't go home after work and say, hey, honey, I hate you because I love God. That's not biblical. So we can't take that and I'll say the same for Romans chapter 9 or for the relationship of God with Esau and Jacob. If we're honest, there's many times where Jacob is acting much more like a Christian than that Esau is acting much more like a Christian than Jacob is. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 33. And here in a moment, after Jacob has tricked his brother one time, after Jacob has tricked his father, his blind father, on his deathbed, now he's afraid of coming in contact with his brother after many years have gone by. And Jacob, he's still conning, he's still conniving, he's still scheming. And when he runs into Esau, he thinks that he's going to wreck him and destroy him. But in Genesis chapter 33, verse 4, it says, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and the children and he said, Who are these with you? And so he said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. We jump down to verse 11. Jacob tells him, Hey, please take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. And now verse 12, Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. All of this to say, the brother who is loving and forgiving, in this instance, is Esau. Esau is the one that loves his brother and embraces him. So for us to just plainly say, God chose before they were born to cast Esau into hell. I don't think we can take that from Scripture. I think that's pulling Scripture a bit out of context. And we need to be careful that we don't take things out of context. Does the Lord choose us before time? And He does. Does the Lord damn people to hell? I don't think so. I don't think that's a loving God or a loving Father. Does man have free will? Yeah, the Lord gave man free will. Does the Lord predestine? Yeah, the Lord predestines. Does it make any sense? Not really. doesn't make much sense. But that's where we need to just trust the Lord. I say, God, I don't get this, but I love you. I want to have that childlike faith. Do my kids understand how I work and my bank account and my checkings account and my savings account? They don't. Ella thinks I work at Bass Pro sometimes. That's what she thinks I work at. <laughs> but when we go to an ice cream shop, man, they just ask. They just want to be with me and they just ask, hey, Dad, can I have X, Y, or Z? Family, we need to be reminded that knowledge, it puffs up. But love, it edifies. So we're not going to understand everything in God's word. If we understood everything about God, be a pretty lame God. Be a pretty lame God. When you've played a game and you've figured everything out about the game, you kind of get bored of it. You don't want to deal with it anymore. 
And now if we in this world can understand everything about God, I'm sorry, but how boring is heaven going to be? If we understand everything about God now, what is all of eternity going to look like when we're in our perfect form? I don't want to be there. I don't want to be in that heaven. Every single day in heaven, we're going to learn more about the Lord. Every day is going to be new. We can't understand the Lord. If you understand this, please explain to me how Mary gave birth without any sex. Please explain it to me. I'm dying for someone to explain it to me. It doesn't make any sense. Our minds are not supposed to comprehend it or deal with it. We do our best to understand scripture, but that's not necessarily how we grow in our relationship with the Lord. John 15, right? Abide in me. I'll abide in you. Obey me. Hey, man, we'll be best friends. It wasn't study me, know me, no backwards, no forwards. No, abide with me. Spend time with me. Obey me, and we're going to be friends. We need to be warned and reminded. Who was the kingdom of heaven as Jesus came and was bringing people in? It was the knowns. It was the no names. Who were the ones that he was constantly saying some mean things to? The priests, the Pharisees, the know-it-alls, the Bibles backwards and forwards. That's not what the Lord uh, is about. He's about people that have that childlike faith that are looking to obey him and love him and make his word simple for other people to know and to obey. We go back to Genesis chapter 25, and now we see here these two twins being born, and they are complete opposites, right? One is looking like Chewbacca, and the other one just rides his coattails, almost like Han Solo and Chewie, right? Um, But it's two nations, and the older will serve the younger. This isn't the only time we see this in Scripture either. We know that for Joseph and all his brothers, they all literally bowed down to worship him as he's there in Egypt. And I think he got a little bit in trouble as he's gloating to his brothers about his dreams. There's an alternate reality that I wonder, man, what would happen if Jacob and Esau really loved each other like brothers? What would happen if Joseph wasn't gloating to his older brothers about his dreams and how they would all bow down to him, right? But what happened to Moses if he would have never killed that soldier? Lord, what if? Doesn't really matter though. But here in verse 27, it says, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. And now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So we see them grow up and they could be no further apart from each other. If you know a family that has multiple kids, you learn this. If you have multiple kids, you see this. Wow, this is crazy. Had Levi. This kid's pretty awesome. This kid's this. Okay, Ella comes. Whoa, complete opposites, right? But then Luke comes and you're, whoa, there's three complete opposites. I never knew such a thing existed. And that's what we see here. They're twins, but they're complete opposites. Is it sinful to be a skinful hunter? No way, shape, or form. All this is telling us is that Esau was more prone to do the things of the flesh. And for 9 out of 10 of the men here, that's what we're more prone to do. That's what we desire, right? Hey, let's meet at 6 a.m. for football or basketball. Hey, let's meet at 6 a.m. to go hunting or fishing. Dude, I'm there. Hey, we're going to meet at 6 for a hospital visit. What? Right? We're going to have a men's prayer and fasting meeting at 6 a.m. on Saturday. Who wants to show up? It's like crickets. Just most of us are like that. 
And Jacob, on the other hand, peaceful man, or even some versions say the weak man, he lived in tents. What Jacob was more prone to, instead of being a skillful hunter, hey, Jacob, you want to go out hunting? No, I'll stay home with mom baking cookies, right? That's who Jacob is. Nothing against cookies. I love cookies. I love good cookies, right? But that's who Jacob was. There's some men that love being outside, and there's some men that I know and love dearly that their ideal day is being in the library all day. That's not my ideal day, but I love them, and we're all men. We can all glorify the Lord through godly manliness, and it's not this specific hobby or the other that is an attribute of God. But we see there at the end a little idea of who Jacob was. He liked to live in tents, and that can hopefully remind you of Isaac, but even remind us of Abraham that he dwelt in tents. That's what Abraham was about. Now the danger and the problem comes in verse 28. And we've read about Jacob. We've read about Rebekah. They seem like godly people, godly parents. They love the Lord. Things were going wrong. Unmet expectations. No kids. They didn't sin. They didn't complain. They sought the Lord. But now, verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste of game. But in contrast, the opposite, Rebekah loved Jacob. And here we have a godly couple that still had favoritism family that's dangerous that will drive a wedge into any and every family as parents we need to be careful we just don't like this kid because of what they do for us for Esau and Jacob another version says that he liked the taste of venison right so Esau is my boy right he brings me home that eight point buck and he's cooking it he's smoking it I love the taste of that so I love Esau right I love grouper. He brings me home a 100-pound grouper. My boy, Esau, right? And that's who Jacob is. That's why he loves him. And now Rebecca instead loves Jacob. And we'll see a problem through this family because of the favorites that the parents are picking. And guess what? Jacob, with his sons, he has the same exact problem. And he picks and chooses favorites. The brothers get mad at each other. There's problem. There's friction in the home. Parents, first and foremost, we're supposed to love like Christ, an agape love, a selfless love. That is not, I never got to be a major league baseball player, so he's going to be the major league baseball player, right? But he loves books and libraries and stuff like that. Man, grow him in those things. As parents, God's word compares our kids to arrows, and there's different types of arrows. There's some 12-inch arrows 24-inch arrows, some are for fish, some are for deer, some are for turkey, some are for practicing, some have a blunt head, some have suction cups, right? Some have a trident. There's all different types of arrows. We need to see what the Lord has given us or what the Lord has entrusted to us for 18 years and say, Lord, how am I supposed to send them? Where do I need to sharpen them? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And it's not one size fits all. It's not one size fit all. We need to pray just like all of us here. We're not one size fit all. The same is true for our kids. So as parents, we need to bring, Lord, help me love them, whether they make my life easier and they bring me home a bunch of cooked venison, or Lord, let me love them even if they do all the opposite things that I like and enjoy. Lord, let me love them and care for them. We need to be so careful with favorites. Verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew... Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, 
But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Again, speaking of these two men, their differences, how all throughout their lives, in this moment, is Jacob being a loving brother? Right? When your brother is hungry, what are we supposed to do as believers? Hold it over their head and bribe them? No, right? We're supposed to feed them, give them the water, give them the food. But what Jacob does here is, according to his name, he's being a con artist. He's saying, hey, you want some stew? Oh, I got some stew, right? But it's going to cost you a little something. It's going to be a price attached to it. And I got to think Jacob, he was hunting the whole day. He didn't shoot anything. He comes back. He's super hungry. He sees that red stew. Maybe it's red lentils. Maybe it's some chili that you enjoy. Maybe it's some garbanzos with chorizo on it. Probably wasn't that. But, man, he comes home and he's famished. He's so hungry. Reminds me, as a, a kid, one of the, I think one of the nightmares, at least for me, was being in fabric stores as a kid. Didn't like it. I don't know how many boys love being at Joanne Fabric with their moms, right? Right after school, after an eight-hour day at school. But what's even worse than that is being at a fabric store that's going out of business. That's like the worst of the worst for a middle school kid. There's one day we were at the store, again, right after school. I always liked going straight home after school. But right after school, and we went to this fabric store that was closing, and the line was from the door to the back of the store. And we're sitting there waiting in line, Mom, I'm hungry. And I knew of this great Pancombiste place right around the corner. So I said, hey, I'm going to go over there. You can tell like food. So I walked over there. I grabbed my Pancombiste, and I just walked back into the store, right? There's been people waiting in line for hours for sheets and fabric. I don't know why, but, man, they've been waiting there for hours. And then it all hits them. They're also going. Some of them start looking, boy, you better be careful in here with that steak sandwich. You better, there's a lot of hungry and angry and bitter people in here. I got to think that's what happened with Jacob and Esau here. He's hungry. He's been waiting. And he just wants some food. And he's willing to give away his birthright. The thing here, though, is that it was not his to give. This transaction wasn't valid. Why? Because the Lord promised that birthright is not going to belong to Esau. Jacob, that birthright belongs to you. You don't have to fight for it. You don't have to go after it in your flesh. I'm willing to give it to you. I've already given it to you. But Jacob still feels as if he needs to scheme, as if he still needs to con his brother into giving him something that's already his. And Esau giving something that doesn't even belong to him. And this begins just the constant friction between them as brothers. So Esau, he gives it up. He says, what good is it if I die? He's saying, hey, one day I'm going to die. Is this thing even worth anything? And most pastors, we look down at Jacob for this portion of Scripture. But the Lord never looks down at Jacob on this. Because the birthright, not only would that person have double portion once the dad passed away, but once the dad passed away, the one with the birthright would become the priest of the home. So many scholars believe what I think here is what Jacob wanted was to be able to be the priest of the home after his dad passed away. That was his desire. And again, family, may that be our desire. We can turn to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Again, the Lord, he's sovereign. He's in time, out of time, all the time. We don't have to put him in a box or try to completely figure him out. But in Hebrews chapter 12, it gives us some insight into Esau's life. And again, the Lord chose who he chose beforehand. But what we will see here in chapter 28 of Hebrews is the life of Esau and the fruit of his life that we don't know why, but God does. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." Again, Esau, he was a godless person. He ended up being a godless person. He ended up being someone who was into sin. He was a fornicator. He was a profane person. So the Lord is the Lord. And though Esau's character was not the basis for God's choosing, Esau's character showed the ultimate wisdom of God's choice. That's what David Guzik has to say on this. So again, family, for us to trust in the Lord. But may we not be like Esau. The Lord, he has incredible blessings for us. God has promises for each and every one of us here. And they're not just small promises. They're huge. Promises of blessing, of joy, of peace and patience. Promises of going through crazy trials and still being calm and even keel. The Lord may want to use you in leadership and discipleship. And a moment of sin comes by and you say, I'm going to give up the birthright for this bowl of beans. I love one commentator. He says, there wasn't even any meat in the bowl. There wasn't even any meat in the bowl. Just like the first sin was a fruit. Wasn't even a piece of steak. Man, and Esau gave up his birthright for a vegan bowl of beans. Nothing against vegan bowl of beans. But man, he gave it up for a waste. And how many of us as believers, we say, Lord, I know I should go to church more. I know I should be serving. But God, there's this, there's this bowl of beans that I really like, God. I don't know if I want to obey you. If we're honest, I don't know if I want to be your friend. I don't know if I want to obey your commandments. I really like my bowl of beans. I like how the Nazareth says red stuff. I really like my red stuff, God. I don't know if I'm willing to give it up for that birthright. Family, as believers, may we say, I'm not going to give up my birthright. I'm not going to give up the spiritual blessing. I'm not going to give up on the double portion that God has for me. I want all that you have for me. And Lord, I'm not going to be willing to give up all that you have for me for my sin or for my pride, for my anger, for my stubbornness. No, Lord, I want that birthright. I want what you have already said you want to give me, how you want to make your joy full in us. You want to give us the peace that goes beyond understanding. You want to give us salvation. You don't want anyone to burn in hell forever. Lord, I want it. 